When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This month on The Compliance Life, I visit with Valerie Charles. Valerie has one of the most interesting journeys to and from the CCO chair. After sitting in the CCO chair, she realized the need for an integrated tech solution for compliance, so she went to a tech startup, GAN Integrity. She then moved to consulting at Stone Turn. We conclude this month with Valerie Charles on The Compliance Life by looking at the CCO function in 2025 and beyond. I know you'll enjoy this month on The Compliance Life. In part one, academic career and early professional life. The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a chief compliance officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and they'll be right back with Valerie Charles on The Compliance Life. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again for another month on The Compliance Life. This month, I'm thrilled to have my good friend and colleague, Valerie Charles, I'm not quite sure how long I've known Valerie, but it's been many years in the compliance profession. I've wanted to have her on this series for a long time, and I finally was able to get her. So, Valerie, first of all, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your story with us. Thanks, Tom. I'm super happy to be here. This is um, kind of a kind of a fun thing to do to think back through everything in your career. So, uh, could you start off by telling us about? Uh, where you grew up and then going to college, uh, you have some experience in dance and maybe talking about uh, your early academic life and then your early professional career. Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in East Tennessee, a town called Johnson City, which is one of the tri-cities, probably most famous for um, fast car racing, the Bristol Motor Speedway. Um so long and short is I was a part of a, a dancing studio. And so I had had a lot of experience in bigger cities like New York and LA taking classes and performing and doing some things like that competing. And so um, 
I knew that I wanted to go to a big city, a big, big city. I really only applied to undergrad um, in New York and Los Angeles and ended up uh, tra- going to Occidental College in LA and um, working at a studio called Edge in Hollywood um, on the dance side of things. So I was studying political science in school and then studying dance separately. So what was your undergrad degree in? So what happened is I was studying political science and religion mainly. And then I ended up transferring uh, for my junior year. I went to DePaul University in Chicago, and then I did my senior year at NYU London, um, which transferred credits back to DePaul. And uh, when I when I made the change from Occidental to DePaul, it created a situation where I had to change my major from political science to American studies if I wanted to graduate on time. So technically, my degree is in American studies, but it's, it's mainly a kind of a poli-sci degree. Uh, what led to the interest in law school? So when I, well, first my dad is a, my dad is a lawyer and, um, you know, he practices, I think what some small town people call door law, which is, um, you know, he takes clients, whoever comes in the door. Um, and when he was a really kind of inspiring person, just because he, he did it all himself, you know, his dad died in world war two. Uh, when my dad was three years old. And so um, my dad went to undergrad on the GI Bill and then went to law school on scholarship. And so he loved his career and he liked kind of being his own person. You know, he was a not not a person who loved authority. And so I think um, working for himself worked for him. And I always found that appealing. Um, then I worked after after undergrad, I worked in civil rights. I worked for a civil rights uh, law firm in L.A., uh, which is still in existence. I worked for a guy called Will Harris um, in Pasadena, who's a great lawyer. He had been in big law and then made the change to do kind of plaintiff side Title VII employment work. Um, and then also some police misconduct cases. We had some really kind of very moving um, taser and, and and shooting LAPD cases that were, um, you know, highly publicized and all that. And I just realized, you know, part of my job as a non-lawyer working for a lawyer in that space was spending time with a family and also kind of the non-legal parts of advocacy in the job. Um, And so really, I I think I fell in love with advocacy first and foremost, and that made me uh, feel like law school was going to be the right decision. Where'd you go to law school, Val? I went to uh, Cardozo, Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law, which is part of a Yeshiva University in New York City. Um, it's a great school. It's a really, really, really great school. I think everybody in New York knows that. I think sometimes outside of New York, it doesn't get quite the acclaim, uh, maybe just because it's so religiously affiliated, but it's a, it's a, it was a great education. And, and also it's a tight-knit community. Um, so it was really good in terms of graduating and having a lot of good options and Cardozo alumni that were very, very helpful. Uh, Could you tell us or give us a little bit of sense of your law school experience Um, with uh, most law schools are much smaller than uh, undergraduate programs. And so you do tend to have a a fairly tight knit community and within the group, the group you're in at law school, whether it may be in your section or a study group or something like that. But what was that like when you overlaid the religious component? Yeah. I mean, it was interesting. I think when I was at Cardozo, it was probably half maybe of the population of students was, was non-Jewish. And so, you know, it wasn't like it was a strange thing not to be Jewish, but at the same time, I mean, I did take a couple of classes on 
um, kind of Judaism and law and things like that. I just, I found it all really interesting. I also have, I have a whole lot of Orthodox uh, religious friends. So I've been to a lot of Orthodox religious weddings and learned a lot about kind of lesser known Jewish holidays. And um, yeah, I mean, for me, it was a great experience all, all around. And I think, um, I don't know, I think Cardozo, I, I was glad that it was small and not a huge, huge uh, school. I think, I think those of us who went there do have kind of that feeling like we, you know, really know each other well. Private pra- or graduating from law school and moving into private practice, what, what types of cases uh, did you work on? Yeah, so I, you know, I never thought I would go to big law. To be honest, I I really expected myself um, to go to a public defender office. That's just kind of what I thought I would do. I had worked um, in addition to the civil rights work I'd done. I had worked at the Innocence Project um, with Barry Sheck and Peter Newfeld uh, during during um, law school as a clinic. And I had had the luck, really, of, of being a part of a, an exoneration in Rochester of a guy called Doug Warney. And, you know, again, it just it just really made me want to work um, kind of against the system on behalf of people. And so I, I, I applied, actually, at several uh, public defender offices. And I also applied in big law. And obviously, you know, you have, oh, well, not everybody, but I had a lot of debt coming out of law school. And so it was, um, it was attractive to go to the big firm and still know that you could get into white collar work. Um, I would have gone probably to the Bronx defenders had they offered me a job. Uh, they didn't. And so I went to Buchanan and Gersal and Rooney, which was, um, a big law firm where I started working with a guy out of Philadelphia called Bill DeStefano, who's a great white collar lawyer. And, um, I found the entire experience really uh, interesting because it was a lot still advocacy. You know, when you're when you're kind of up against the federal government, which usually my work was DOJ rather than SEC, um, you realize that it doesn't it doesn't matter who you are. You know, it doesn't matter if you're an executive at a corporate. It it's sort of a very scary thing um, to be accused of a federal crime. And and you know, not all of our work was federal, but I would say most of it was federal. Um, shortly thereafter, I moved to a couple of different law firms. Um, the last firm I was at was called Edwards Wildman, which has since been um, acquired by Locke Lord out of Texas. Um, and I worked there at a couple different firms with um, a guy called Carlos Ortiz, who had been um, kind of underneath Chris Christie is the head of the criminal division in Jersey for a number of years. So he was really, you know, a 20 year plus uh, federal prosecutor. And I learned a lot more about kind of you know, how the system works and, and, and working for, uh, Bill DeStefano and Barry Slotnick is a very different animal than working for Carlos Ortiz. I think it's, it's just a different approach to the work, um, to work with people who have been, uh, spent a lot of time in the government versus people who kind of really view themselves as, um, you know, just staunch kind of anti-government defense lawyers. Um, but I liked both. I mean, I feel like I learned a lot from from both uh, sets of people that I worked with. And and um, yeah, it was great. I mean, I, I did a lot of wire fraud. I did a lot of Internet gambling and I definitely did a lot of um, FCPA. You know, the anti-corruption work uh, really became probably my favorite. And I found it to be um, good in terms of advocacy, but also really good in terms of just intellectual stimulation. You know, you're not you know, I think if you if you do work in a defender's office, 
it's not that it's boring, but that, you know, you do see a lot of the same kind of um, crimes again and again. I mean, I, I have several colleagues who kind of say, you know, e- you know, after so many years, it's, it, it, it is kind of repetitive work. And I think what's cool about white collar work is that it's never, never, never boring. I mean, really trying to go back and figure out what happened, how did this happen? And more importantly, how do we put you in the best light we can, you know, in front of the government? And, and which person, if it's a corporate defendant, you know, which person do we put in front of the government? Who who has the best um, likelihood of uh, of coming off, you know, <laughs> in the way that we want you to come off, which is usually sorry. Um, so it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of psychological work uh, that goes along with this kind of stuff. And I always, I, I've always really enjoyed it. So I've talked to a lot of people who started out in private practice either gravitated or were pulled into kind of a white collar type practice. And then from there gravitated into compliance and almost to a man or woman, they say they found a passion around compliance because of the nature of the work. You certainly mentioned that, but you had one other point that I have not heard, which was the intellectual component of compliance. I was wondering if you could speak a few words about really what excited you intellectually and what challenged you intellectually in compliance? Yeah. So, you know, my first compliance job um, was at a company called AGT International, which is a Swiss company um, with a lot of Israeli management. And so I spent a lot of time um, once I pivoted sort of figuring out the business, you know, really trying to understand, I think, you know, to, to do anything to mitigate risk, you have to obviously identify where the risk is specific to that business. And I think what was intellectually rewarding was learning about the business. I mean, I, I've said this, I think, on, on other podcasts with you, Tom, but I think the best compliance people are truly hand-in-hand partners with the business. I think you can't do this job properly without being uh, in the weeds and really understanding the drivers of the business. You know, what what is motivating individuals, whether they're salespeople, marketing people, and whoever they are, um, and actually what's important in terms of, of revenue goals and, and what's, you know, where are these pressure points that we're likely to see problems because of the way that um, the business is is operating. And I think, you know, it's like getting an MBA. I mean, you really, with every client matter that you have, you're, you're, you're deep in understanding how the business works, how the money flows through the business, and what is motivating various players um, kind of along that, that revenue streamline. And so that's, I mean, that's an intellectual exercise. It's a fun exercise. It's kind of like solving a puzzle a little bit. Um, and it's, it's different than legal, because I think with legal, you know, you can do a great job um, in a little bit more of a silo, you know, with, and it's not that you're entirely siloed. I mean, obviously to do a good job as a lawyer, you obviously have to understand the business, but I, I think it's a little bit different because you're not operationalizing your work. You know, you're sort of, you're doing your work and then you're explaining what the risk profile is to somebody else. And they can assume that risk or not assume that risk, you know, based on what you've told them. I think with compliance is different because you're not just providing the information to somebody else, you know, upon which they then make decisions. You're, you're instead going and implementing the, the, all the mousetraps everywhere and the controls everywhere 
And to do that, to operationalize the advice, um, I think requires a different level of understanding of the business, of, of the truly the, the weeds, the details of the business. And, and I just, I think that makes the job really dynamic, really fun, really challenging. Well, Valerie, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I hope our listeners will join us for uh, episode two when we come back next week. And we're going to talk about your move from in-house to a tech startup. I look forward to continuing this conversation. Me too. Thanks, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. I hope you will join me again next week where I take up another episode in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, Any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.